Church, if you would begin turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. And I hate to do this, but can Jack or my wife go get me a water bottle? (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever uh, received the voicemail from John at the Automotive Services Center who's trying to call you, uh, who's trying to reach you to talk to you about your car's extended warranty? And his records indicate that your warranty might be expired or it will be expiring. I love that they both have records and yet they're not sure which. (laughs) Um, But it's urgent nonetheless that they speak to you. Scams like this are ceaseless, right? And scams are getting more clever. We've had this discussion in our church office several times and just how it affects the work we do as a church staff. They try to exploit our fears. They try to exploit our desires. They, they prey on our desire for wanting something more. Now that something is oftentimes money, but not always. Sometimes it's safety. Sometimes it's security. I might would put the car salesman into that category of security. But they prey on our desire for something more. Scams aim to deceive us. And they are often so effective because they promise us good things. They promise security, they promise peace, and yet they always fail to deliver on their promise. Today, we're, of course, looking at another one of Jesus' parables. It's the parable of the rich fool, where Jesus teaches the folly of placing too much emphasis on material possessions. And and so let's read that text today. Uh, We are in Luke chapter 12, and we will begin in verse 13. This is God's word. It's written, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, before we dive into this text, I want to try and convey the great importance of this text for us. Americans have massive barns full of goods, probably more than the man in this parable could have imagined. In Mexico this past August uh, and in this upcoming June, we, we've traveled to the state of Oaxaca, And in that state, 61.9% of the people live in poverty. Now, this is Mexican poverty. This isn't American poverty. On average, that group of people in Oaxaca would make around 95 pesos per day, which in USD, United States dollars, would be $5.50. When we were there this past August, I took this picture. This picture has been burning through my mind this week. Oh, it's going to be a long sermon if I'm crying at this. 
I took this picture on a phone that 61% of the people in Oaxaca would have to work for 200 days just to afford. Almost seven months. Consider also what you fall asleep on each night. We climb into comfortable mattresses and fall asleep, never or rarely thanking God for such a luxury. And sleeping on a mattress is a luxury. This past week, I asked the team who went to Mexico this question. I asked them, if you could describe the people we met with one word, what would it be? And this is what they said. They said, patient, welcoming, affectionate, thankful, giving, purposeful, selfless, and generous on $5.50 a day. Now, I want to be clear from the start. This text that we are looking at is not condemning possessions, nor is it condemning wealth. But the parable is for every single one of us. We have massive barns. And the amount of storage facilities found in every county of this country, even in our own backyards, testifies to the fact that the desire of our soul is just like the man in this parable. To build even bigger barns. And so as we go through this text, let's listen to Jesus' warnings for us closely. Luke 12 is a fascinating chapter. In the first 12 verses, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Now, this small group is in the midst of a crowd of many thousands. We read that in verse 1. But he's speaking to his disciples. Um, But there's many listening, right? And and so Jesus is teaching his disciples some very important, difficult things. He's, He's warning the disciples about hypocrisy, and he's teaching them about the fear of God. He's teaching them how to take a stand and how to boldly live for Christ in the face of opposition. In other words, he's not making idle chit-chat with his disciples. He is teaching on things of great importance. And somebody in the crowd chimes in with what would seem to be a completely random request. The man called out, verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now, scholars are kind of confused about why Luke would have placed this here. It just doesn't flow very well in the narrative. But I personally don't see very much difficulty in it. When we get to the parable itself, Jesus tells a story of a man who is completely self-absorbed. And I think one reason Jesus does that is to show that this guy was completely self-absorbed. This guy couldn't care less about Jesus' teaching about boldly living for him, even when facing opposition. This man had his own issues that he wanted Jesus to help him with. Now, we don't know all the details of this brother's complaint. We know that there had to have been at least one other brother. We can assume that the father of these, at least two brothers, has recently passed, which is why they are now having this inheritance dispute. But beyond that, we don't know the details. It's possible that the other brother has kept the inheritance in its entirety, leaving this man with nothing from the inheritance. It's also possible that part of the inheritance has been shared with this man, just not as much as he would have liked, and he wanted what was his. And Jesus wasn't going to have any part of this discussion. He said, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? This is Jesus telling the man that your inheritance dispute is not my problem. This is not what I have come to do. Maybe if you had been listening, you would have had the sense not to request me to act in this way. But we see some irony in this statement too, right? Jesus will be the judge and arbitrator of this man. He just isn't that for this. Jesus was clear in his mission. 
He did not come to increase your personal wealth and any preacher who tells you otherwise should be avoided and dismissed. Jesus tells us why he came. He said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And with Jesus responding in this way, we start to see that Jesus is going to flip the script with this man. We start to see that there is something of far greater importance than any earthly inheritance. And there is a great risk that you will lose out on it. And we see Jesus give that warning. And this is, is actually the key verse for understanding this text. Verse 15. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. There is a danger we face, perhaps particularly here in America. An excessive attachment to wealth and possessions. What Jesus talk, is talking about here is the excess. The always wanting of more. The heart that is never satisfied. That's what Jesus is warning against. And he gives us two strong commands here, right? Beware and be on guard. It's a recognition that this temptation is stealthy. It is sneaky. And it infiltrates our thoughts without our awareness. Now, at one point or another, we have all felt the lure of this treacherous trap, right? I drive a reliable but older vehicle. Uh, now, I say that ironically. My car didn't start yesterday. It was just a car battery. But, but sometimes my neighbor's new car looks pretty in their driveway, and I think it would look pretty in mine, right? <laughs> and maybe it's not vehicles for you. Maybe it's something else. But the instruction is clear. We have to be on guard against this type of thinking, we have to erect barriers that prevent its easy entry. Now, if you don't, again, this is not saying don't go out and buy a new car. We're talking about our heart's intention in all of this, okay? But we have to erect barriers that prevent the entry of these always wanting more thoughts. And when they begin to sneak through those barriers, we have to be quick to, and decisive in cutting them off because possessions cannot satisfy us. Now, we don't need to limit this discussion to wealth or possessions either. We could include in this conversation honor. We could include in this uh, conversation prestige and power and position. Jesus says, be on your guard against every form of greed. The type of life that Jesus is talking about here in verse 9 is a life that produces contentment and peace and joy. Contentment, peace, and joy. We're going to return to those three words frequently. And Jesus says there's only one place to get that kind of life. And it's not through the possession of any earthly belonging or ideal. Those things might give us a temporary surge of pleasure, but they can't give us life. Not life in the sense that Jesus is talking about. And so after the rebuke of this brother, Jesus tells him a story, right? A parable. And, and through this parable, he shows us three errors that we are prone to make. And every single one of us should heed the warning associated with these errors and see if any part of them is evident in our own life. The first error that the man in this parable makes is the error of misplaced faith. Jesus began the parable, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and goods. Now let's pause and recognize how natural this feels. We are given a realistic problem, no place to store a crop, 
and we are giving a normal solution. Build a bigger barn. Seems pretty normal, right? Doesn't that seem to be a very reasonable solution to the problem at hand? Now, I think where we go wrong with this parable is skip past the first sentence. (laughs) To understand this story, we need to back up to the very first sentence. It says, the land of a rich man was very productive. The land is the subject of this sentence. The man had everything the world had to offer. The the text explicitly said he was rich. He had a lot of money, and with that money, he would have had plenty of good food, probably fine wine. He had every luxury that you would expect a rich person to have. And with this bumper crop, he was getting even richer. Now, there is nothing in this story saying that he did anything dishonest. There is nothing in this story saying he was a crook or that he didn't come by his wealth honestly. In fact, from outward appearances, we might consider this man to be an honorable businessman here in America. However, this story does give us an inside glimpse of the man's heart. It's clear from the text that it was the land, the natural richness of the land that ultimately was what was giving this man his wealth. So much wealth that he needed bigger barns. And he began to talk to himself which should be our first warning. (laughs) Talking to ourselves can be quite dangerous. It can also be quite helpful. I'll get to that in a minute. But he was entirely self-absorbed. He was in love with himself. If you look at the original Greek, and I know this is dangerous. I'm not going to go that deep. But the original Greek, the parable has 54 words. And 18 of them, around 35% of the words, are first-person words like I or me or my. He may have been an upstanding businessman, but he was also obsessed with himself. He asks himself some questions, and perhaps more dangerously, he gives himself some answers. But the text wants us to see that it is ultimately God who gave him all of this. The man thought it was his. He placed his faith in himself when in reality he should have recognized that all of it was ultimately from and to God. His prosperity was from a source outside of himself. In other words, it was a gift, much like an inheritance. Last week, Mike mentioned that one of his pet peeves was when pastors who are speaking about their church say, it's my church, and I couldn't agree with him more. But you don't have to look very far to see that that's not usually the case. As churches grow and as the Lord does good and mighty things through that, churches, uh, through that church, the pastors might face the same temptation that this businessman faced. And rather than glorifying God and acknowledging that every good and perfect gift is from above, pastors too are tempted to look inward and say, look at all of this that I have done. And unfortunately, we've seen the results of this type of ministry. We've seen and heard stories of pastoral abuse, misuse of power, and the platforming of oneself rather than the glory of God. It's obvious that pastoral leadership within the church should not ultimately point to any one man other than the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's dangerous. It's dangerous inside the church and it's dangerous outside the church. This man's richness was from God. And yet he put his faith in himself. That is the first error that this man made and it's the first one that we need to be on guard to prevent. The second error is this, misguided promises. We're still looking at verse 18, but we're going to add on to it verse 19. The man continuing to speak to himself, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This man is, in essence, preaching to himself. 
Now I firmly believe we need to wake up every morning and preach to ourselves. But we have to make sure our message is correct. We need to wake up and preach to ourselves, remind ourselves of the mercies of God. That no matter how good or how bad this day goes, my assurance is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. And it's by grace, through faith, in Christ that I am saved. And in light of that truth, we pray for endurance to obey his commands and live for his glory. That's the message we should be preaching to ourselves. But the sermon that this man preaches to himself is one of death. If you think back to how Jesus defined life in verse 15... Jesus said, beware and be on guard against greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In that context, life, in the way that Jesus uses the word, is one that produces contentment and peace and joy. Now in this parable, parable, in verse 19, the man speaks to his soul. And that word that translates to soul, it could also be translated to life, but it's not a life identified by contentment, peace, and joy. This life is identified by goals and commitments. And so the man, having failed to recognize that all of his wealth was a gift from God, he rested in his possessions. Soul, you have many goods stored up. Take your ease, rest, relax, take life easy, lay back in your Adirondack chair on the deck and watch the sunrises and sunsets for the rest of your life. Go pick up seashells, go play shuffleboard, you've done well, so rest. Now we're not oblivious. Wealth does afford us certain conveniences and pleasantries. Of course it does. I'm sure most of us have very nice mattresses in our house, my family included. The folly this man makes, though, the error we often make is resting in those pleasantries, as if those pleasantries can provide us the ultimate contentment, peace, and joy. Those things promise to provide us with contentment, peace, and joy, and they may provide us with those things for a short time. But that time is fleeting. Can you picture this man, the man who was rich before he had this bumper crop to harvest? You might see the anxiety in his eyes as his hands are woven together and he's tweeting in his thumbs asking, what am I going to do with all of this crop? I know a big builder barns and then I can rest. But what happens next year when he once again has a storage problem for his crop? The cycle starts all over again. The contentment is fleeting. Now I have a quote for you, and, and there is some conflicting information on if this quote is accurate or not, so hold on to the accuracy of it loosely, but I think it's still helpful. I'm sure many of you have heard the name John D. Rockefeller. He was a businessman and an oil tycoon in the early 20th century, and when you adjust his wealth for inflation, most sources say that he was the richest man in American history. And it's reported that in an interview, he was asked how much money is enough, and his response was one more dollar. Now again, I don't know if that's an accurate quote or representation of that man, but I think it represents the man in this parable. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, it often represents us. Maybe in different ways. Maybe it's not wealth, maybe it's popularity, maybe it's power, maybe it's the respect of others. I just need a little bit more respect of others and then my soul can rest. But the contentment, peace, and joy that these things provide is all fleeting. 
They promise something that they can't ultimately provide. Only Jesus can provide you with a rest that endures. Only Jesus can provide you with a rest that endures in times of trial and in times of prosperity. We often think of times of prosperity as times of gladness, and they are, but I also think the story shows us that times of prosperity are oftentimes are often also times of increased anxiety. Only Jesus can provide us rest, a rest that enables us to say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The problem in this story is not that the man is wealthy. Wealth is not the problem. God gave this man his wealth. The problem is his heart. Instead of recognizing his possessions as belonging to God and consequently meant to be used for his glory, he regarded everything as his own to be utilized solely for his personal gratification and gain. So the first error that this man made was he put his faith in himself rather than in God. The second error, this man trusted in promises that couldn't ultimately be delivered by the promises they were being placed in. And the final error, he misjudged eternity. He misjudged eternity. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? The man thought his wealth would provide him with years and years of happiness as he drifts off into retirement. And Jesus essentially tells him, tonight, you will meet your creator. Now what? This man is not a fool because he's wealthy. I'm going to sound like a broken record. The man is not a fool because he was a poor businessman. In fact, he could probably say we could probably say he was a wonderful businessman. He could be a company visionary. He could plan, oversee, and execute budgets. He could manage people, and I'm sure he worked hard. He was a fool because he remained completely oblivious to God. Here's some more irony. When God tells this man that his soul is required of him, he's using a banking term. A commentator writes, he's using the same terminology a banker would use to call in a loan. God is telling the man that his loan is now due, the loan of his mortal existence. His life has always belonged to God, and now God is calling to claim it. The irony doesn't end there, though. Throughout this man's life, he paid no attention. He gave no thought to God, and ironically, God overheard his entire conversation he had with himself, and he must still answer to God. That's why this man's a fool. The man hoped to eat, drink, and be merry. Instead, he will stand before God to give an account for his life. The man misjudged time. He misjudged the remaining time he had on this earth, and he misjudged eternity. You know, there will come a day when your time on this earth is complete. You can't stop that day from coming. No matter how much you try, no matter how much money you spend on skincare products to keep you looking younger, you can't stop that day from coming. Your life is on loan, and one day God will call to claim it. It might be tonight. It might not be for another 70 or 80 years, but either way, time is running out, and on the other side of your time on this earth sits eternity. And Jesus is telling us that it is foolish to live this life with only this life in mind. It is foolish to live this life without eternity at the forefront to get this point across, he asked the man a rhetorical question. He asked, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And the obvious answer is this. It doesn't matter because they won't be his. 
He can't take it with him. He leaves it behind, maybe to his kids. The more I studied this text, the more irony I saw within it. This story is given to a man who is having an inheritance dispute. Now, leaving something for your kids is not a bad thing. I'm saving for retirement myself, Lord willing, whatever is left after my wife and I are both gone will go to my children. But we have to be very careful. Remember, greed is sneaky. And parents can use their kids as an excuse for their own selfish gain. We can use our kids as an excuse for building bigger barns for ourselves. And in the process, say that we are trying to set up our kids for the future when in reality we are only seeking more for ourselves. And there's another danger associated with this. If what I pass down to my children is nothing more than the fruits of my labor, my bigger barns, and I don't pass down the promise of salvation that's found in Christ alone, then my kids will never rest. If all I pass down to my kids is wealth or respect or good business acumen and they don't know that there is a God who is sovereign over all of that and that they need to be on good terms with him, then there is no chance they will find rest. So what I'm saying is this. Work hard, save hard, and if the Lord makes you prosperous, don't forget that it was the Lord who made you prosperous. That there is a God who is sovereign over all of this. And the only way to find joy and peace and contentment is to be on good terms with him. So the instruction for us is found in verse 15. That key verse, beware, be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life, does peace, contentment, and joy consist of his possessions. This man was a fool because he lived for the wrong things. He was a fool because he lived for things and not for the creator and giver of those things. The man in the parable thought he had a storage problem. The younger brother thought he had an inheritance problem. What they actually had was a God problem. Do you? Are you on good terms with God? Consider how the parable concludes. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. If God calls you home later today, will you be ready to meet him? It's funny, when it comes to standing before God, it won't matter how many possessions we have or how much money we made. All that will matter is if I had been rich towards God. But what does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, at the very least, it includes your attention towards him. It includes your time. It it implies trust, that you trust him, that there's a a mutual sharing of affection. If I were to be rich towards my wife, and I promise I don't do this well, (laughs) it would mean that I'd be investing in our relationship. It would mean that I would be there to support her emotionally, that I would be understanding of her needs. That I show her appreciation and respect, that I love her. It would mean that she and I are on good terms. Rich towards God means he and I are on good terms. Are you and God on good terms? Now we have to be careful with how we answer that question. Because we might be thinking that to be on good terms with God, we have to go to church more, or we have to increase the amount of our giving, or I might need to lead a new Bible study. And and those are all good things, and they might be things that God is calling you to do. But if, if that's how you're answering this question, then you're using God in the same way that this younger brother was using Jesus. 
You're saying, hey God, here are all of these things that I've done, now give my soul rest. You're using God as a means to an end. The younger brother in this story wanted his older brother to give, his, give him more of the inheritance, and he used Jesus to try to get it. He used Jesus as a means to an end. And Jesus rebuked him and said, that's not what I'm here for. And we recall that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And what this younger brother failed to see is that this man, Jesus Christ, could give him everything his heart desired and more. Jesus could give this man an inheritance. Jesus could give this man a much better inheritance than what he was asking for. Jesus could give this man inheritance which Peter says is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and is reserved in heaven for you. In Scripture, salvation is likened to an inheritance. Inheritance is given to you. It's not earned. So to be rich towards God, you don't come to Jesus and say, look at all of this that I have brought you. No, you go to Jesus and say, I bring nothing to the table but my sin. Forgive me, I am yours. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Being rich towards God is not about showcasing our accomplishments, but acknowledging our need for his grace and mercy. It's about recognizing our shortcomings and understanding that salvation is received through faith in Christ and not by our efforts to earn it. Approaching Jesus with humility, acknowledging our sinfulness and seeking forgiveness dem demonstrates our reliance on his grace for salvation. It's not, a, it's not about what we bring to the table but in trusting what Jesus freely gives us. It's when we rest in the riches that he provides us through faith in Christ that we are rich towards God. And it's then from that richness that we offer our entire lives to him. Because everything is from him, for him, and will one day return to him. God has been generous towards us. He's given us everything. He has given us his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself, Paul said, and took upon himself human flesh, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Why? So that all who place their faith in him alone could be made right with God the Father. I'm not saying we don't work hard. We do. I'm not saying we don't save, we should. I'm not saying that wealth is bad, wealth can be wonderful. I'm saying that we are richest when the glory of God is our highest aim. And God is most glorified when we find our rest in him and in him alone. From our rest... We live generously because we want to honor our Father in heaven who is generous towards us. From our rest, we give sacrificially because our Father in heaven gave sacrificially to us. From our rest, we attend church regularly and we lead Bible studies with, one, with, with others out of a deep desire to foster the same loving relationship with him that he longs to have with us. We embrace each day, every endeavor, every interaction as opportunities to bring glory to our Father in heaven. Joy, peace, and contentment come from knowing Christ. And you would be a fool to give your life to anything or anybody but him. 
Now, perhaps you are sitting here struck by the realization that you've been a fool. Perhaps you've never once even acknowledged the existence of a sovereign God. Or perhaps you've acknowledged him, but solely for personal gain. But maybe you're saying, I don't want to live like that anymore. Maybe you've come to the realization that you've placed your faith in the wrong things. Perhaps you've trusted in promises that can't be delivered. You desire joy, peace, and contentment, but you've been looking for those things in the wrong places. Perhaps you've misjudged time and eternity itself. If you want joy, peace, and contentment, then come and find your rest in Jesus. And when you come, you bring nothing with you. Even your best works are like dirty rags when compared to the holiness of God. But you still come nonetheless. You repent of your sin. That means you you turn away from it and you turn into the arms of Jesus. We don't have to make this too complicated. And you believe in him. You trust in the profound work accomplished by Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. And you embrace the truth. That his sacrifice is entirely sufficient for the gift of eternal life. This gift is not earned by our merit, but it's graciously given through faith in Jesus. Repent and believe. And if you have questions, we'd love to help. You can come talk to Pastor Mike or Pastor Kirk or myself at the conclusion of the service. You can scan that QR code and fill out the Connect card and we'll get back to you this week. But, but listen carefully. Don't make the mistake of delaying. Your life is on loan. And one day God will call that loan due. So repent and believe today. Your very soul is at stake. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful Father, we we bow before you in humility and gratitude. We thank you for speaking to our hearts through your word. Father, you've revealed to us the folly of misplaced priorities and the immeasurable richness that is found only in you. Father, we confess that too often we've sought fulfillment in temporary things, forgetting that true joy, peace, and contentment are found solely in your embrace. Forgive us. Father, forgive us for the times that we've placed our trust in empty promises, when we've chased after fleeting desires instead of seeking your eternal treasures. We also thank you for this gift of repentance, for the opportunity to turn away from our sinful ways and to turn into your loving arms. Help us to daily surrender our lives afresh to you anew each morning, recognizing that even our best efforts fall fall short in comparison to your holiness. Father, grant us the faith to trust completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and and his resurrection as the only means for everlasting life and true rest for our souls. May the lessons that you've taught us today take root in our hearts. May they guide our steps as they leave this place. May they empower us to live lives that honor you and prioritize your kingdom above all else. And as we depart, may your spirit continue to illuminate our path and lead us closer to you and into the image of your son with each passing day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.